Buenos dias, listeners. I'm very happy to be um, kicking off the very first proper collective podcast here in Surrey Hills in Sydney. And my first guest is Dr. Jeffrey Schweitzer. He comes to us from Massachusetts General Hospital and Harvard Medical School. Welcome, Jeffrey. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Michael. Thanks for uh, inviting me here to Sydney and for arranging beautiful weather this week. It's my pleasure. It was very hard to pull off, given the appalling weather we've had for most of the year. Um, I said the first proper podcast because we, although we have one uh, podcast already up and running, that was uh, an interview of myself on community radio. This is the first time that I, as kind of the host, interview someone. And the idea behind the collective podcast series is that it's conversations with KOL, so key opinion leaders in the biotech industry, all the way up and down the food chain. And so it's great to kick this one off, uh, talking to you, Jeffrey, given you know your leadership in regenerative medicine, specifically pioneering IPS cell uh, therapy for Parkinson's disease. Uh, so for those that don't know what an IPS cell is, do you want to maybe just give a, a very brief intro to that? IPSC, as they're called, uh, are induced pluripotent stem cells. Uh, most people have heard of stem cell technology it's developed over the last 20 years or so, although it has a history that goes back farther than that. And uh, my relationship with stem cells, one way or another, goes back almost 40 years. Stem cells are cells that have the potential to develop into various dis descendant types. They are ancestor cells of the final products that make up the cells of the body, and they come in various flavors, so to speak. There are stem cells. Because we all start off as a stem cell. Yes, that, that is correct. And, and I'm glad you raised that point because the cells that we all start off as would be termed embryonic stem cells. Those are the natural kind which we develop. Uh, and as the body develops, the potency of these cells, the uh, variety of different descendants to which they can give rise becomes progressively restricted. Induced pluripotent stem cells are artificial stem cells, similar to embryonic stem cells, but made by working backwards, by turning back the hands on, of the clock, by using special chemical manipulations to take an adult cell and turn it back into a cell that has the potential to give rise to multiple cell types. This is the, the amazing technology that Yamanaka has got the Nobel Prize for a number of years ago. That's correct, yes. yes. And so your concept is starting with an iPS cell that started off as a, maybe a skin cell in a, a patient. So you would harvest some skin, you would uh, culture some of those skin cells from that skin sample and then reprogram those skin cells into an iPS cell. That's correct. It's a compli complicated and, and somewhat difficult process with many issues that can arise along the way. Interestingly, uh, you mentioned that Shinya Yamanaka, who won the Nobel Prize for this, and the initial hope had been that this would be a widely adopted strategy for cell replacements for various clinical diseases, but most of the work that ended up being done with it was disease mechanism research. In other words, constructing models and dishes to study drugs and other manipulations rather than actual clinical application of these cells to human diseases. In other words, doing what we're talking about today, transplanting the cells. That's actually been the minority of what's happened with these various reasons. And why do you think that is the case? What are some of the big issues or stumbling blocks before getting to the clinic? When you take an adult cell and turn its identity back to an undifferentiated state, you're making it very similar to, to a cancer cell. This is how cancer cells behave. They become more primitive, they lose their identity, and they want to spread and reproduce themselves. And so the border between what is a stem cell and what is a cancer cell can be an easy one to cross and it turned out to be somewhat more difficult than people had expected to prevent tumors from developing out of these. Also, if you're going to turn the cell back into this primitive state, you then have to guide it forward again to the type of cell that you want it to become.
come. And that means you have to understand all the normal cues that happen during embryonic development and be able to reproduce them. And that turned out to be a very difficult process, I think much more complicated than people had initially hoped or expected. Yeah, I think we'll come back to that concept because it touches on both the concept child, but more importantly, the future and where we're going to go from here. So I've got in front of me here your um, 2020 paper, Personalised IPSC-derived dopamine progenitor cells for Parkinson's disease. So this is how I met you, basically, when this was published. Um, like many people, fascinated by it and excited by it, and I got into contact with you by email, and we started, you know, a, a connection. Um, so if we turn to this uh, paper, which is a proof-of-concept trial, um, essentially a case study of one individual who was treated uh, for his own Parkinson's disease, uh, what most people who read the paper don't realise is that that individual patient who was treated was not only a volunteer but the sponsor of the trial. Um, and, you know, we've talked a little bit about that, and I think it's a, an amazing part of the story. So who is this individual? And obviously he's happy for us to be talking about him, so that's important to, to recognise straight off the bat. But who is he and, and you know, how did this come about? Uh, first, I, I want to make it clear that we do say in this paper that it was sponsored. You, you, you can't keep those things hidden. So there was nothing secret. This was all out in the open. This had regulatory approval from the uh, US government, the Food and Drug Administration, from IRBs, which are ethics boards of two different institutions. And at the end of this paper, it says that it was sponsored in part. This is a return to a concept that was once widely accepted, uh, the phenomenon of governments Sponsoring research is a relatively new thing. Uh, traditionally, research was done by scientists who had either their own independent wealth or had patrons, and people tend to support research that is of interest to them. So there's nothing really unnatural about this. This particular man, and his name is out there, it's Dr. George Lopez, a uh, remarkable, remarkable individual, just one of these very admirable people. Uh, is the creator, founder, and uh, leader of a company called ICU Medical. Uh, this is how he, he made his uh, considerable his fortune. His fortune. This is how he made his fortune uh, by doing good things. Uh, Dr. Lopez is someone who, who throughout his life, uh, would never take no for an answer. Would never consider anything impossible would never consider any barrier an obstacle. And uh, so it's always a pleasure to talk about some of the things that he did as a young boy. He tells the story of going with his father uh, fishing at the coast in uh, Southern California in Los Angeles and being able to see the fish in the water and asking his father why they needed to use a fishing line. Why didn't they just jump in and grab the fish? To carry that forward, uh, young George Lopez decided this is what he wanted to do. He got a job at a dive shop that made custom wetsuits. He couldn't afford a custom wetsuit, so he kept the scraps that were being discarded and glued one together for himself. Uh, trained himself to free dive, became a guide on a scuba diving boat where he could hold his breath longer than scuba divers could. Ultimately became a, a world-recognized free diver, spear fisher, and many other things. But along the way, uh, George Lopez also went to medical school and tells a story of a key event that changed his life as a, a resident in Southern California caring for a patient who had heart failure. Uh, and this patient had an intravenous drip going through a needle into a plastic tube in his arm. The needle was held in a plastic tube with tape, which was the common way to do these things at that time. Patient was doing fairly well, and uh, Dr. Lopez went to give the patient's wife a call, let her know what was going on. When he came back to the room, patient had died. The taped-in needle had come apart when the patient moved in bed. And so Dr. Lopez had to go make another phone call to let the wife know what had happened. And as he tells it, 
he was so frustrated and upset by this that he picked up the telephone and tried to throw it across the room, but he was not successful because the phone was plugged into the wall jack and wouldn't come out. And that inspired him on the back of a napkin to design an IV that would work the same way. Right, right. so that was the light bulb moment for him. That was the light bulb moment, and he went on to found a company based on that concept, uh, which became the very successful ICU medical we have today. Along the way, not only did he save unknown thousands of patients from that particular uh, event, that kind of disruption, but also because this eliminated needles, he saved thousands of nurses every year who got hepatitis from sticking themselves with needles. Uh, he was a just an inspiring person, um, active in many fields, very generous with his time. Uh, and then a few decades into this, he developed Parkinson's disease. This was not his first encounter with a frustrating medical situation. His, his wife died of breast cancer. This is another area in which he's been very active. He himself developed Parkinson's disease. He, he attributes this to some of his breath holding. He, he may have hurt himself that way. It's not clear. Most people with Parkinson's don't know how they got in. There is no obvious. There is a, there is a genetic form. About 15% of people have an inherited form of Parkinson's, but the vast majority don't. And he's one of those. When he developed Parkinson's, once again, just like with the wetsuit that he glued together, he was not going to take no for an answer and decided that he was going to be the man to solve this problem. With his medical education and his determination, he then went around the country to conferences and lectures on Parkinson's to look for what he felt was going to be the leading laboratory that was going to come up, not with just a treatment, but with a cure for this. And he was in Boston at one point, attending a lecture by Professor Hong Su Kim uh, from the Molecular Neurobiology Laboratory at McLean Hospital, which is part of Harvard Medical School. And Dr. Lopez was very impressed by this talk. This was 2013, this happened. Very impressed by the talk and said, here's, here's a guy who I think was going to find the way forward. In the United States that year, we had something called sequestration. There was a government, essentially a government shutdown where the government stopped dispensing or dispersing funds, even the grants that had been approved. So the money was drying up and Professor Kim was on the verge of shutting down some of his research and dismissing some of his uh, postdoctoral students and other key people in his laboratory. Dr. Lopez emailed Professor Kim and said in his email, how much would it take, how much money would it take for you to go twice as fast with your research? Kwong uh, Su thought this was a joke. Delayed yeah. job. Right, <laughs> very nearly. He kind of offhandedly mentioned this to his son when he went home and said, hey, I got this email from this crazy guy who said this. And his son said, dad, we'll just you know talk to him, see what he wants. And so we're saying that everything subsequent is thanks to the sun. Thanks to that's right. right. <laughs> that's right. That's exactly right. And and sure enough, they sat down together and uh, and George Lopez, Dr. George Lopez, wrote out a check for two million dollars, uh, and that was the beginning of the collaboration, which led to the paper you have sitting on the desk here. Um, so he's a lab scientist, kind of developing better and improved methods of. Yeah. of directing these immature cells down certain, let's say, dopamine pathways, because Parkinson's is a kind of dopamine disease, right? Kwong Su Kim had an interest in this area uh, going back 30 years and had been involved in many different aspects of the basic science of dopaminergic cells. Yes, that's exactly right. Parkinson's disease, to give a, a very oversimplified explanation, involves the loss of a particular type of brain cell that makes a chemical called dopamine. And that has many different consequences, but among them are the classic symptoms of Parkinson's that most of us are familiar with, the uh, shaking or tremor, the stiffness and slowness of movement, the loss of facial expression, the soft voice, 
These are all things related to loss of dopamine. And since this was recognized, this relationship between loss of these particular brain cells and the onset of Parkinson's, that, that realization is late 1950s. Uh, about 10 years later, a medical replacement strategy for this, pills basically for this, were developed. Levodopa. Levodopa, which is sort of the, it's almost more food than medicine. It is the precursor. It's the precursor. It's the raw material that the cells use to make the dopamine. So you can think of that strategy as force feeding the cells that are still alive so that they make more of the stuff. But of course, force feeding all the cells that could potentially make dopamine. That's correct. And so, and that's the perfect segue to the next part of this was this. This was a treatment, it was not a cure, and it is a treatment that had some significant problems because a few years into treatment, many patients developed a problem called dyskinesia, which is kind of the opposite of Parkinson's. It's uncontrolled excess movement. And some of these uh, people would develop fluctuations between on and off states. So just to kind of wrap up here, there was a, there was a good treatment the treatment was not a cure. There were actually surgical treatments for Parkinson's that go back many decades before there was a medical treatment. Those surgical treatments all involved destroying things, cutting things, cutting, cutting connections between nerves or making holes in the brain. So it's a sort of destructive uh, surgery that was the normal way to treat this. Then the medication came along. None of these were cures for the diseases. All of them, as you can see from the description, had major problems. And, and so the goal here and uh, Dr. Lopez's involvement is a determination to find a way to replace those lost cells. How could we put in cells to replace the ones that were gone as a result of the disease? This is where he was inspired by the lecture he heard from Kong Soo Kim, who was well on his way to doing this, to understanding how you could take the stem cells that we talked about earlier, these cells that had been had their clocks wound back to the primitive state and safely and efficiently wind them forward again in the direction you wanted them to go to become precisely this little subset of cells that you need to do this. It sounds like, you know, at that point, maybe conceptually there was half of the story coming together. You know, we have a source of cells, we have a, a brilliant scientist developing new ways to uh, make them kind of more dopamine friendly, but they've got to get into a brain, right? They've got to get into a human brain specifically. So I guess that's your area. How, how did the connection, how was that connection made? I had an interest in stem cells going back to a time before that's what they were called. Uh, during my medical school training, I became interested in development, development of the nervous system in particular, and uh, actually decided to take a few years during medical school and do a PhD degree specifically in cell and developmental biology. Um, our original interest was looking at brain development, but I developed a, a model that got a little bit sideways from that and involved what we would now call mesenchymal stem cells during muscle development. I had a long-standing interest in that. Uh, after I finished medical school, my interest in, in the brain continued. I thought for a long time that I would go into neurology. I discovered that I didn't have the personality to be a neurologist. Ooh, I was, I was, I'm very tempted to ask you what kind of yes, personality. Yes, well, yes. I, I, wanted, I, I, I wanted to do things <laughs> rather than to just talk You're about action oriented. There's a difference, and, and you know, without casting any aspersions on anybody, um, much of internal medicine, of which neurology is a part, involves careful background consideration and research and debate and, and kind of considering should we give this medicine or that medicine, can we dial this up a little bit or dial that down a little bit? And some of us don't have so much patience <laughs> as others and, and just want to do things. There, there are a few fields in medicine, uh, psychiatry, and surgery among them where the, the physician is actually giving the treatment to the patient rather than ordering medication. And, and I found that when I did my surgery rotation, that approach appealed to me and putting that together with uh, my interest in brain science and neurology, 
uh, neurosurgery is a natural fit. So I am not one of those neurosurgeons of which of whom there are many who decided age three that he wanted to be a neurosurgeon. I kind of came into this at the last minute through this kind of conversion of uh, convergence of interests and um, personality traits. At any rate, I, that's the field I went into. I did my uh, training in neurosurgery at UCLA after I, I left medical school. And then I did a fellowship in functional neurosurgery, specifically in epilepsy at Yale University. Yale was involved in some of the early work on um, Parkinson's that I'll talk about in a moment. Um, as for myself, I became involved with a, a treatment that was just gaining ground at the time that had been recently introduced called deep brain stimulation. I had mentioned earlier that the older surgical treatment that went back to before the time of medicine actually involved making holes in the brain, destroying things. Around 1991, that had been reintroduced. Uh, a fellow named Larry Leitinen reintroduced this idea of something called a pallidotomy, which is basically making a hole in the brain. That's one of those operations that existed all along that had kind of faded to the background a little bit when the medicine came out. But as the problems with medicine appeared, the surgery became popular again. Nobody was terribly happy, though, with burning holes in the brain. And one of the things we would do before we made a hole was test by stimulating through an electrical, uh, an electrode or an electrical stimulator in the spot we plan to make the, uh, the hole. And uh, a, a brilliant, a brilliant medical scientist, physician, surgeon in uh, Grenoble in France, Alain Benedict got the idea of just why don't we permanently implant the stimulator instead of making the hole. And there was actually existing technology that had been developed for other reasons that he was um, using at the time, and that subsequently became a product from Medtron, uh, which is now one of many uh, from several companies that falls under the category of deep brain stimulation. Essentially, with these things, instead of making a hole in the brain, we use electrical current. And it's not 100% clear how that actually works, whether you're blocking something or stimulating something, and it's probably complicated. But again, I want to emphasize, this is non-destructive, uh, and it is a good treatment, and in fact, the best standard regulatory-approved treatment we have at this point when medication doesn't work, either because it doesn't have an effect or because it has too many side effects like dyskinesias, but it is not a cure. It is still a treatment. It does not prevent progression of the disease. And it has side effects. And in some people, it has significant side effects. And for all those reasons, as I mentioned, Dr. Lopez is a stubborn guy. Uh, and he had hooked up with people who shared his belief that there were better things that could be done. Now, just as an aside, while all this was going on with the transition from medicine to surgery to stimulators and so on, uh, work had been going on also back in Sweden, where a lot of these discoveries about dopamine and Parkinson's had originally been made, on this concept of can we replace these cells? This was before stem cells were available. This was 20 years before. It was a long history. Yes. So this was somehow replacing that lost dopamine signal in this part of the brain we're talking about, which is the striatum. But this goes back at least to the 1970s, and the concept goes back even farther. Various different tissues were tried. So the thought of taking tissue from somewhere else in the body that made similar chemicals to dopamine and putting that in the brain, especially adrenal medulla, but other things where you try to. A number of those things, they didn't work terribly well. Uh, but one of the things that was tried as a source of tissue was human fetal midbrain. In other words, from aborted fetuses, removing the part of the brain that contained these dopamine cells and using that as tissue to implant in Parkinson's patients. And that had, in these early pilot studies with small numbers of patients, had some very dramatic effects, uh, enough that it was encouraging to the entire field to move forward along this direction. Now, there are obvious ethical and logistical problems with using human fetuses as a source of tissue. But it's important to understand that you can't take this tissue from cadavers. In other words, 
for uh, corneal transplants. It's possible for a donor to shoot tissue. You can give somebody part of your liver. So there is no source like that in an adult human. And straight away, what jumps out at me is that you're using obviously tissue from another human being. So you're getting problem of rejection. So that's that's an excellent point, and thank you for pointing that out. But it, it just goes to show this was a proof of concept. Using fetal tissue was never going to be a great way to solve this problem for the large numbers of people. Parkinson's, just is worth mentioning, is the second most common degenerative disease after Alzheimer's and affects something like 1% of people over the age of 50. As the population of the world gets older, it's a bigger and bigger problem. It's not a rare disease. Huge problem. So using human fetuses was never going to be the way forward. There this is often how medicine progresses, right? We, we, we try something maybe is not the optimal, ultimate solution, but we take a lesson from that, off sometimes an unexpected lesson, and we and pivot towards another direction. Michael, I'm glad you mentioned that because that comes up a number of times, including in, in some of the debate that surrounded the paper that you, you're talking about and, and the, the, the surgery that we did. Um, what you're saying is that uh, science often advances and medicine often advances by iterative approach. You try something, you are encouraged by a proof of concept that it isn't quite where you want it to be. You modify it, you try it again, and this is how you progress. And this is something I think that in medicine and biotech there's almost a bit of fear around it, whereas in, say, IT development, software development, there's this concept of fast failures. It's good to fail quickly and early so that the next version of the software improves and then it's tested in the field and you quickly learn what's wrong with that. And so the idea of this agile methodology of iterative improvement of a product is very straightforward and yeah. very accepted. That's right. We, we have a problem if the rocket blows up on the launching pad. But if the rocket only gets to a suborbital flight for now, that's okay. The next one will be the orbital. That's the approach that we're taking here. Um, you know, without skipping too far ahead here, it's also important to realize that you learn from each of these iterative steps what you need to do that may not be obvious until you begin to take those, right? And so coming back to the study we're talking about today, yes, this is a single patient. This is a single patient involved here. Dr. Lopez. Dr. Lopez. Uh, and you, you can refer to this, I think, uh, aptly as a pilot study. You know, we think of pilots as people who fly airplanes, but the original meaning of the word was someone who would guide a ship into an unfamiliar harbor because the pilot knew where the rocks were. And similarly, until you actually put a, a complex process into practice like this, you don't necessarily know what the important issues are that you will need to address in trying to move on to the next step. And, and so I also want to point out how brave a subject has to be to allow work like this to proceed. On so Dr. Lopez, yes, he has the money to do this. Uh, there was some criticism of the way we went about this, that this was pay to play. As I said earlier, though, we're going back to kind of old tradition in the way medicine was done. There's also a tradition of people experimenting on themselves in medicine, and that's very much what Dr. Lopez was doing here. He was taking the risk of using unproven technology and having cells put in his brain in the hope of getting a cure. Not only was there the possibility that this might not work at all, but there was the possibility that it could actually harm him. So he, he's a brave man. But you know, we're getting a little bit farther away. Just to kind of finish up the story of how this group came together and how we got from all these different directions to the point of publishing this paper, doing the surgery and publishing the paper. Once uh, Dr. Lopez had hooked up and uh, connected with, with Kwang Soo Kim at Harvard, they needed to find a surgeon, as you said. Somebody's got to put those cells in there. And, and this is something which, of course, I'm, I'm not exactly uh, objective about it. But I think it's been underappreciated the extent to which 
surgery is critical to moving forward transplants into the brain. It's a very unique environment. Uh, it is quite different from organ transplants of other sorts. Um, and it would be a mistake to think of this as uh, just being able to stick any old cells into the brain with a, a syringe and a needle and, and it's going to work. There are many other considerations. Brain cells are extraordinarily sensitive to temperature and oxygen and trauma. And so this field has been remarkable for the difficulty in getting the cells to survive that whole process. This was recognized in the days of the fetal tissue work that we've been talking about, that better than 90% of these precious cells from the human embryo or human fetuses would die at the time of transplantation. And some of the patients who were implanted with that fetal tissue it required multiple fetuses just to do this. So I, think, I think part of the I guess less than on a metaphor there is we talk about implantation, plantation. You know, when, if a cell, a stem cell is a seed, it would be ludicrous to ignore the soil that you're putting that seed in. That's a great analogy. Uh, and it, it, this was one of the problems that led up to um, a pause in this whole field of research in the early 2000s. Based on the work that had, well, I'll come back in a moment to how our group came together, but a little more background on this, because I mentioned the fetal tissue work and, and logistical difficulties. In spite of all that, because all the previous work had been open label, uh, there was concern about whether much of the benefit was actually placebo effect. And as is the case with most new medical procedures, there was a need for a blinded study, in other words, a, a study where the surgery was done without the patient knowing what they'd received, without the evaluator, the neurologist, seeing the patient knowing what treatment they had to see whether this actually worked. And so there were actually several of these studies done in the United States uh, around the year 2000. And the result of those studies was somewhat disappointing. Uh, overall, it was difficult to show benefit. Um, there were subgroups of patients that did benefit. They tended to be the younger and less severely uh, symptomatic patients who had greater improvement. There were also significant side effects. I mentioned earlier about dyskinesias, these uncontrollable movements being a side effect of medication. Well, some of these patients in these uh, blinded studies developed what are called graft-induced dyskinesias. So rather than the excess dopamine coming from a pill that you take, the, the excess dopamine here is coming from cells growing in the brain, which you can't turn off or not take. Between those things, between the less than hoped for positive outcomes and the significant number of patients who developed the dyskinesias, it's about 15%, the enthusiasm for this approach just went away. However, the issue of tissue availability suddenly had a solution because of the stem cells that we talked about at the beginning. And the potential was there now using either embryonic stem cells or induced protopotent stem cells to make as many cells as you wanted. So if 95% of the cells die when you put them in, you just make 20 times as much. And then there was a period of time when we were allowed to make embryonic stem cells the the government in the United States then prohibited that. Uh, no more new ones could be made, no embryos destroyed. The result of that was that there are now several lines of embryonic stem cells that were created at the time that are generally available. No new ones are coming along. So you then at that point had a choice between using these embryonic stem cells, which as you pointed out, Michael, are all from other people. These, these are human Fetuses, but they're far, it's foreign tissue, and it, it, it would be the same as a kidney transplant or a liver transplant from another donor. Uh, and the appeal of induced pluripotent stem cells is that that's not the case. So you, potentially now you have cells that you could make in any quantity that you want, and that would not be rejected because they had come from the patient himself. So this is what Dr. Lopez, who likes to be called Doc, you, I'm going to 
without being, I mean, Colin, that's, that's, that's how he likes to be addressed. So Don and uh, Kwang Su planned on how they were going to do this, but they needed a surgeon. Uh, Doc Lopez at the time was getting his, and still does, get his neurology care in the Kaiser Permanente system, which is a managed care system in Southern California. And that's where you were. And I was at that time, and I moved around a, a number of times in my career. At this point in my career, I had kind of left academics for a while and was managing the functional neurosurgery program. By that, I mean surgery for things like Parkinson's disease, epilepsy, um, function of the nervous system. I was doing that in Southern California, and so I was well known to the neurologists in that system. And when Doc Lopez asked his neurologist, Carol Neff, who's one of the co-authors there, uh, who he should get to be the surgeon for this group, she, she suggested my name, which I'm, I'm grateful to her. That was very flattering. Uh, and, and how that actually came about was I was in clinic one day seeing patients, and uh, the secretary at the front desk said, we, we have a phone call for you. He said, well, I'm, I'm with the patient. No, 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 you have to take this one. I picked up the phone call, and uh, and the person on the other side said, Hi, I'm George Lopez. How would you like to be the person who cures Parkinson's disease? That's I said, good. Okay, I'll, I'll get right back. That's That's very good. I'll get right back to you on that. Um, it, this kind of was one of these small world situations because. Uh, I was in San Diego when that phone call occurred. There in San Diego, the chief of neurosurgery at UC San Diego, University of California, San Diego, was a fellow named Bob Carter, who had trained at Massachusetts General Hospital, part of Harvard Medical School, which is where I had been a medical student. It was where Kwang Soo Kim was. Long story short, we all kind of got together at that point to form a group, sat down and planned strategy for how we wanted to make Doc Lopez's dream a reality. Uh, as part of this, Bob Carter became. Was, was Dr. Lopez sitting in on some oh, yes. meetings? Oh, absolutely. His, you, you, know, can't, you, you can't keep him out of this. And, you know, there, there, there are issues with that too, but he's a reasonable person. Yeah. <laughs> he, he's, he's well informed. He wants to know. He wants his opinions considered, but he's not the sort of person who's going to overrule the uh, decisions of people who he has specifically chosen for their expertise. But he, he's a participant. It's a fascinating way of designing a trick. <laughs> um, Bob Carter, as I mentioned, was chief of neurosurgery at UC San Diego when this began, but he, at this point in our story, uh, took up the uh, chief position, chief of neurosurgery at Massachusetts General Hospital. And so I, at that point, followed him back to Boston uh, and Continued with the work there. That's kind of how this everyone ended up. Everyone ended up in the same place. place. That's right. And except Doc, except the patient, except Doc. Doc is still living in a beautiful place in Southern California, but but he was willing to go back and forth and uh, and as needed, uh, which is not just for the surgery itself, but for as you might imagine, multiple tests and evaluations and all the things that you need to do to document a new therapy. Um, now, by now, I'm sure the listeners are dying to know how did it go, what happened. <laughs> so, it's important to understand that you don't just do this. One of the popular uh, articles that came out about this work uh, made some reference to the secret experimental surgery. There is never anything secret or experimental about something like this. Uh, I want to emphasize that this was uh, that all of the work that we did. Uh, started with publication of the basic science laboratory stuff that was needed to prepare cells to prove that they were safe, that they weren't caused tumors, and this was years of work. This was all published in, in a scientific journal before we went ahead. This I have so much sympathy for that story because, <laughs> you know, you can have a paper and often, it's, often it condenses to one figure even, but really all that represents can be a decade or more of very hard work. Absolutely. And then, as you might imagine, this has to be approved by regulatory agencies. Uh, we have in the United States something called an investigational new drug or IND approval from the FDA. Uh, they have their own set of concerns and criteria, safety being number one, but they needed to be satisfied, which is, again, 
uh, not just the years of work you mentioned to, but you know, volumes and volumes of documentation of everything. Uh, the work in, in a product that's going into a human patient needs to be produced under special conditions for good manufacturing processes. That requires incredible amounts of record keeping and facilities and chain chain of custody for every product. So all of this uh, is involved in, in getting there. We also have ethics review boards at every hospital, and we actually had two of them involved in this. So we worked towards getting all of this preparatory work in place, and we're ready to go uh, in 2017. So that was about four years. This was four years. When you it was four years from the time that Fongsu and Doc Lopez met. It was uh, three years after I became involved, one year after Bob Carter became involved. So kind of a countdown. Uh, but we submitted all of this to the FDA. We got our approval. One of the things that they required, and they have their reasons for the things they do. We may or may not agree with every one of them. One of the requirements is that we stage the surgery. In other words, uh, Doc Lopez, like most people, has Parkinson's on both sides of his body. Uh, the left side of the brain works the motor movement, the muscles on the right side of the body and vice versa. They wanted us to wait six months between doing the left side and the right side. The left side of the brain is the so-called dominant hemisphere that works the right hand in most people. That was the case for Doc. This came together so quickly when we finally got the approval that we didn't quite have the equipment that we wanted to have in Boston. And so the first surgery was done actually down in, in New York at uh, Cornell Medical Center. We were, our team was all there. I was there in attendance, but we actually produced the cells up in Boston in this good manufacturing practice environment. We flew down by private jet. Flew the cells by private yeah, well, jet. Well, we had to work backwards. At this time, we now know that these cells can be frozen and used at a time of convenience. We didn't know that yet at the time. We assumed that we were going to have to use fresh cells. So we knew what time the operating room was going to be available to us. And we had to work backwards from that. How long was it going to take to get the cells ready in their in injection tubes? How long was it going to take to get them from the airport to the hospital and so forth? It ended up that the cells were harvested in Boston, taken out of their uh, growth chambers at two o'clock in the morning in order to ship them over to the airport, get them on the jet, fly them to New York, get in an ambulance, transport them to the hospital and so forth. Um, but that, that surgery went ahead as planned. Uh, Doc Lopez did great. He felt great. The next day he was up and around. He took a walk through Manhattan with his sons the next day. Uh, went quite well. Six months later, we were ready to go in Boston. Uh, another round of surgery. Another round identical except for the location that we did it this time we were all up there it was a little bit faster because we didn't have to take a jet to new york and and you know and you're putting in millions of these cells right? the, the because the first time around involved all those transport steps i mentioned there was actually a dry run that we did a few weeks before where we all took an empty vial in the in the jet it was really there's a lot that goes into this you know a lot that you don't see behind the scenes but yes, uh, the second surgery was identical to the first, except for the location, uh, the venue in which we did it this time, it was at Mass General. And once again, Doc Lopez did great, was up and around the next day. Uh, no safety issues, no untoward events, no tumors, nothing. But again, this is one patient. If this is not a clinical trial. This is a proof of concept, as you said. It's a pilot study. We learned a number of things from this that we would not have known otherwise. One of them was the uh, critical nature of the timing here. I mentioned how it was a multi-step process to get these cells down to New York and a little faster in Boston. And we kind of see that in the results. We think that despite all of our care, that a fair number of the cells didn't survive the whole process in going down to New York. And, you know, without getting into detail, there were many additional steps involved in, in the transport. That ended so you up think it's kind of like the stopwatches? Well, there's, 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 we, as you might imagine, we check the viability of the cells. We look at them under the microscope with special dyes to make sure that they're still alive. We, we 
compensate for the number that we think are, are not going to survive the operation. Uh, when we calculate the number of cells we're going to put into the brain, we, we take that into consideration. But there are things that we have a much more difficulty control. We can keep cells on ice for a long time. We have a good idea if they're sitting on the laboratory benchtop or in an ice bucket of how long we're going to stay alive. Once you're in the operating room, many, many things can happen. Brain cells in general, if they're deprived of oxygen, begin to die in, in a few minutes, five minutes. So during these operations, we have the cells loaded up in a syringe in a special device called the stereotactic device. Now we use a, something that is more like a robot, but at the time we use something called a stereotactic frame. This is like a bird cage that goes on the head, which you, it has, you can control to point your needle at specifically where you want it to go. So it's got all these little gears and knobs that let you do this. Getting the syringe and needle mounted on this thing, getting it positioned, uh, takes some time, as you might imagine. And you have to compensate for unexpected issues and as like anything else, it's always more complicated than you think. But the bottom line in this is that your precious cells are sitting in a stainless steel needle at body temperature inside the brain as you're preparing to inject them. And that's not good for them. And if it takes a few extra minutes to get set up because the FDA has asked you to do extra x-rays during this, or you're dealing with a surgeon who's doing this for just a second time, or there's some whatever. There's just many, many different causes that can produce delays. And, and so, as you might expect, the second time is always easier than the first. And it's precisely our point with the pilot stuff. These are the things you would not have known about. You, despite of the fact that we did a dry run, there's certain things you only learn by actually doing it. So you think they were, biologically speaking, one side Oh, the brain may have benefited more. Yes, yeah. And I, I think that's pretty clear. Uh, we learned many different things about that whole process that we are now directly applying to our upcoming clinical trial that we're in the process of working with the FDA to get approved at this point. But again, the pilot study taught us many lessons, and among those were questions that we would not have known to ask without doing it. And although, as you might imagine, we're not the only group of investigators interested in this field, There's, there are other groups using embryonic stem cells, planning to use immunosuppression to suppress the immune system the way you would do for any other um, organ transplant. Uh, we all talk to each other. We have meetings, we publish and read shows publications. We actually have a group of interested laboratories and, and doctors that get together to discuss these things. And, and I think there's been a little bit of movement to do more of the sort of style of injection that, that we've done. But uh, everybody's begun to learn from other people's experience. And this is how medicine moves forward. Uh, but again, I want to come back to that. I think it's an iterative approach and uh, that we are now considerably farther ahead than we were in 2017 and 2018. And it's largely thanks to Doc. And how is he? Doc is doing very, very well. I mean, this was not like a, to make the American baseball analogy, it was not hitting a home run out of the park. Uh, he still very clearly has Parkinson's. But I, I think, Michael, you've seen the video of uh, his, his, among many other sports that he likes to do as a skier, and you've seen the video of his skiing before and after, which is dramatically different. Um, on objective tests, there's, there are many different scales that are used to measure Parkinson's symptoms. His improvement in the motor symptoms is mild. It's not dramatic. It's definitely there. Uh, we also have objective tests, imaging tests. There's something called a PET scan, positron emission tomography, where you can give a drug that's labeled with a tracer that can be seen on a special machine. And this tracer is taken up by dopamine cells. And you can see in these successive PET scans that we did for Doc, you can see more and more of these dopamine cells appearing in the area that we injected them. So we've done testing of his clinical condition. We've done imaging tests. Uh, we've got a, a newer one that I think we've seen where we look at some of these um, 
dopamine neurons actually have pigment in them, and uh, we can begin to see that happen too. So we have some good objective evidence that the cells are alive there. We have some um, modest improvement in his motor symptoms. There's other things that are more difficult to measure in those tests done in a clinic. It's also uncomfortable for patients to have those tests because they have to be off their medication and on their medication. To cut to the chase, he is significantly better. Is he as much better as he'd like to be? No, he'd like to be completely cured. Uh, in addition to all the things we've talked about, you, you were mentioning the number of cells that we put in there. The number of cells we put in was a guess. You know, nobody knows how many cells you have to be. You have to put in a, a human patient that's never been done before. So we extrapolated from laboratory animals. And we know from the fetal tissue work I mentioned earlier, some of those patients eventually died from other causes and their brains were examined. And so we know how many cells from the fetuses were, how many dopamine cells were in there functioning in people who had good results. And between those two numbers and calculating how many cells we expected to survive, we came up with a kind of a rough estimate. Let's, let's imagine that we knew what the right dose was, the right number of cells. And let's say, for example, that was five million cells. Pick a number out of the air. Would my five million cells treating my disease be the same quality of cells as your five million cells treating your disease? Well, that's a question to which nobody knows the answer. And, and I would it's also a complicated answer. Uh, one of the questions we are frequently asked because what the approach we've taken is called autologous when the cells that you're using are made from the patient's own body cells, that's autologous, as opposed to allogeneic, which is taking them from another person, the, the whole uh, immunosuppression problem we talked about. There's actually something called xenogeneic, too. There were actually, back in the 1990s, there were a few patients who received a fetal pig dopamine cells, who actually also did well with that, but had to be, obviously, uh, immunosuppressed. And there's issues... We've all gotten away from that because there's viruses that pigs carry. But at any rate, um, would all of our cells be the same? Obviously not. Just as people's faces are different, their brains are different. There's individual variation in almost anything you can think of. But one of the greater concerns and things that we get asked is, well, if you're using the patient's own cells, aren't they just going to go ahead and develop the same disease that he had? The answer to that is, well, you know, it was Doc was in, is 60 years old before he developed Parkinson's symptoms. If it takes the cells 60 years to develop it, then we don't really, really care. Um, there are problems even with that argument because it isn't entirely clear when Parkinson's develops whether it is something that starts in the dopamine neurons themselves uh, genetically or, or through some sort of injury or whether it's something that spreads from surrounding cells. And in fact, in those fetal tissue studies that I mentioned, patients whose brains were donated into autopsy, some of the fetal neurons, some of the fetal brain cells that had been used to do the transplant had begun to develop signs of the disease. So it's a complicated question. Uh, you know, if we, if people have proposed laboratory creation of dopamine cells that can't be rejected because they have no immune markers on them. Um, bottom line in all this, no two person cells are going to be alike. If you want the best possible uniformity and you're concerned about that, you can use embryonic stem cells, which can be put through the same programming process to become dopamine cells. Then you're going to have to use immunosuppression. Nobody really knows how much or for how long is going to be adequate for that. I guess the point I was maybe reaching for is, is there some way that you can test a particular cell line from a particular individual right. to try and gauge how potent right. or how useful right. it's going to be in that person's yes. brain ahead of time? So one of the advantages of embryonic stem cells is you can do exactly that because you can take basically infinite amounts of this product, do laboratory tests in vitro, you know, and you're on the lab bench, you can put them in animals and test the effects on laboratory animals and know that when you get to your actual surgery to the patient, you're using the exact same cells that you use in the laboratory. If you're going to make a new 
product from each patient and everybody's different, you don't have that advantage. So you have to come up with some way of some basically quality control criteria is what you're talking about. Safety is obviously number one. Uh, part of the process that we go through is checking all of these cells for mutations across cancer or other degenerative diseases. But how well will they work? Well, for instance, with Gox cells, we tested that extensively. First, we had to pick from the, we took a skin sample from Gox, made our IPSC we've talked about, uh, then chose we didn't make a single line. We made 10, 12 lines of IPSC. Screen them for all these safety criteria. Pick the ones that look best and then put them through the programming to make them into dopamine cells. At that point, we used an animal model. We used rats that had been treated to make them Parkinson's-like and put his cells into the rats and showed that it basically cured this issue or that, that it was uh, that that was how we measured its efficacy, how, how well it worked by using that brand. Putting my biotech hat on, when I hear that process, and if we assume that, let's say, the new trial that you're designing, we'll get onto that in a moment, is highly successful, you know, it's a raging success, it seems like it's going to be an incredible amount of work for each individual patient to not just make one line, but make multiple lines and then test all of those lines for these genetic um, um, spontaneous kind of abnormalities or not. That, that seems like that whole approach carries a lot of work and a lot of resources, and then, which ends up being becoming very expensive. That's absolutely correct. It's expensive, it's time-consuming, it's labour-intensive. Um, there are two different issues here, really. One is safety and one is efficacy. The safety testing, I think, can be largely automated because you're doing tests of DNA and chromosome analysis and things that can be now done by machine largely. And I think that's an easier one to deal with. Um, it's also important to recognize that if you decide you're going to use embryonic stem cells, which are off the shelf, you still have to be concerned about the number of times they've been processed and, and accumulation of mutations. So you don't get a get out of jail free card by using that. Uh, the efficacy problem, how well they're going to work, are they going to be adequate, uh, is a much more difficult problem. We have to choose a threshold. You can't test them in the patient or in a human. You have to pick a laboratory model, an animal model, that you're going to use to test. And it is, as you're implying, it is not practical to do that kind of testing for every single patient who's going to get therapy like this. Uh, the, the testing that we did for doctor months to prove that his cells would correct this problem in the animals. So what you need is some kind of correlating marker. Oh, test, marker that's, that's, that's right. Something that anticipates what, that's how right. useful it's going to be in the brain. So some marker that you can prove has a highly reliable association with good outcomes. You know, at the moment, it, it looks to us like if we see something called TH positivity in the cells, that that correlates well with their ability to correct the Parkinson's features in these animal models. TH stands for tyrosine hydroxylase. That's the enzyme, the machinery in the cell that makes the dopamine. And it turns out that if you put these cells into the animal model, come back later uh, and sacrifice the animal, look at the, the animal's brain, that you can actually use a special technique to show this marker, this TH, the, this enzyme, and that bright positivity finally showing up in your graph that you put into the animal correlates well with the the uh, efficacy with how well it works. So that's what we're hoping to use initially. That is less labor intensive than waiting and doing behavioral testing on every animal to see whether its Parkinson's symptoms got better. But we're, we're, this is a very active area of research and, and not just in our lab, but in others too. Predictive markers, we would call it. That's right. And things that can tell you in advance that you're, you're going to get the right kind of cells and that they're going to work. We also recognize uh, along similar lines that when we use this individualized approach, there may be some patients for whom this is simply not going to work because their cells can't get through these various barriers that we talked about. They, they, it, they either can't make enough dopamine 
to treat the problem for one reason or another, or more to the point, uh, during this harvesting of the skin cells or the blood cells, whatever we start with, and processing them to make the iPSC, we just can't get through that process without turning up too many mutations to make them safe to use. That's been more of an issue. Other groups have run into that same issue. There's tremendous variability between different people and how readily their cells divide and how readily their cells form mutations. So these are things that go kind of challenges, right? I suspect that for a long time, there will be different approaches to this used by different groups. And you can make strong arguments either way for things like cost and availability versus the need for immunosuppression. Um, as a physician, as a clinician, I think I perhaps take immunosuppression a bit more seriously or, or I'm more worried about it than some of the other groups are with this. Um, this is not a trivial area, but ultimately I think patients, when, as hopefully will happen in the next few years, we begin to get approval for techniques like this, patients will have some decisions to make to sit down with their neurologists and their doctors and decide what they are willing to risk. Mm -hmm. There is no such thing as risk-free brain surgery. Um, we're getting to, towards the end of our fascinating conversation. I think it'd be great to turn to the future. And I know you're planning a trial in, in this space. And for the listeners, conceptually, are you essentially replicating what you did with a good doctor in, a, in you know, more patients? Or do you just have some new thoughts or some new ideas that you want to incorporate into the trial? We learned a lot, as I mentioned, from the work that we did with Doc and all of that uh, provided valuable lessons that are going to go into the design of this trial. We are interested in looking at what the correct dose is. Uh, we're going to use the same dose that we used for him and also uh, a tier that's about twice that number of cells. Um, we are in discussions with the FDA right now about some details of how this is going to work and what the control studies are going to be. But the intention here is what's called a phase one or phase one slash two clinical trial, which is mainly uh, looking at practicality and safety. Um, the Our FDA right now has a very strong interest in, in proving that, uh, that this actually works early on, the efficacy part, which normally is kind of left for later stages of clinical development. Uh, so exactly what the trial is going to look like for us is not entirely clear sitting here today. And again, I think that because of how we're doing this, ours may look a little bit different than the groups that are already starting their clinical trials with embryonic stem cells. Which, um, from a yes, objective outsider's point of view, is probably a good thing that different groups are trialling different approaches. Um, we just always hope that no one has overlooked an important issue and that there is an adverse event and then that kind of backfires for the whole field. That is exactly right. We, we don't want something to happen along the lines of what, what occurred 20 years ago when the whole field was shut down because of the results of the fetal tissue um, blinding controlled studies that I mentioned. Uh, I think that's, that part of the design of those trials affected the way the results were interpreted. Uh, so we're going to be very careful about that. But yes, of course, each of these groups involved with the stem cell work now is taking a slightly different approach, and we think ours has merit, but we're, we're concerned that one bad outcome, uh, it, it, if it becomes publicized, is going to affect the entire field. Bad outcomes get publicity, publicity affects funding, um, and so forth. So I, I think one of the benefits of this little field, and I say little because it's really, although there are groups around the world doing this, it's not a huge field of medicine, for instance, like cancer research might be. And we basically, the most active groups in this field all know each other and keep in communication. And we do speak to each other from time to time. So we're hopeful that we're all keeping each other honest here. Good. Honest in terms of honest meaning in its usual sense, but also keeping each other um, safe. 
Sure. Now, I know uh, that you're a pilot and that you, you know, spend a lot of your free time when you have it, um, enjoying that pastime. I want you to look over the horizon, beyond the immediate uh, vicinity. Where do you think um, in 10 or 15 years uh, the field will be going to, to? What do you think is exciting or what do you think is necessary beyond, you know, what we've just spoken about I think that cell therapy will play a role and will be on the menu for people with degenerative diseases like Parkinson's. One of the criticisms we received is that all we're doing is putting a dopamine pump into the brain. We're just putting in a disconnected bunch of cells that pump out dopamine. And I think there may be some truth to that. I think one of the challenges we have is hooking these cells back up so they function like the original cells do when they're connected. They have both the input and output that normal dopamine cells would have. That is a challenge. Um, putting embryon, essentially embryonic cells into the adult brain presents challenges that you would not have with normal development, and that needs to be overcome. Um, we've not looked carefully at combination therapies like the deep brain simulation I mentioned before together with cell therapy. I think that there are exciting technologies that will allow us to have better access and control to these cells that are implanted. And I think combinations of um, better cell therapy, safer cell therapy, uh, cell therapy used together with other modalities like deep brain simulation or electrical simulation and developments along those lines will, uh, will uh, allow us to come as close as we can to a cure for this disease. In other words, I think that there's not going to be, uh, short of the ability to predict in advance who's going to develop this and cut it off in its tracks and stop the disease from developing it to begin with, that's the only way you can really cure it. Once the disease is developed, I think it's going to require a combination of these modalities. And then cell therapy will be an important role. So it's going to fit into a larger picture of uh, many or different therapies that uh, will be used to treat this. And you meant you asked about different people's dope, uh, cells making different amounts of dopamine. That brings to the final point, Parkinson's is not all one disease, and even people with the same version of the disease develop different symptoms at different rates, affected in different ways. All of that will also need to be considered. It is not going to be a one-size-fits-all therapy. There will be many treatments, and they will be tailored to the needs of the individual patients. Well, thank you, Jeffrey. You brought up and you taught us that the true meaning of a pilot is someone well experienced to bring in um, a ship into a dangerous harbour. And I think extending the analogy, if we're on a rocket ship, to the stars, and one of those stars is a new curative treatment for Parkinson's disease, I think you, as the pilot of that ship, uh, were in safe hands, and I think that's very obvious. And thank you for your conversation today and the great conversations we've had this week. Um, that's a wrap. Michael, thank you very much for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. Great. Thanks to your listeners and we'll see you in the next, next podcast where we'll have an exciting new KOL as part of our collective podcast series. Ciao.